Good morning, Lumpur. Good morning, Ajahn Asoka. So today is the 30th of January, Saturday, and it is the first time we record one of these videos from Amaravati. Yes, we've. This is our 10th day in, uh, back in England. And we're still in quarantine for, we have a two week quarantine. This is, we have a few days left, about four days left. All is going well. It's very nice to be back in Amarvati. So today's question is regarding Metta. You like to talk about Metta as acceptance. Could you say a few words about that, please? Mitta is a, a Pali term, Pali language term, meaning usually translated as loving kindness. And it's one of the four Brahma-viharas, the first one. It's also a Baramita in the established ten Baramita sequence in Theravada Buddhism. <clears throat> But also, the reality of metta is 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 uh, the reality of consciousness itself, because consciousness, pure consciousness, uh, doesn't discriminate, doesn't uh, judge, make judgments, value judgments is not critical. And uh, metta, as practice, generally the formulas that we use, it's it's spreading equally. This loving kindness to to everything, to the good people, the angels, the devils, uh, all the dear friends and and people we like, people we don't like. So it's this total acceptance of the way it is. You know, so even though, you know, we try to spread metta through words, actually metta is the very background of, of consciousness. It's uh, it's what consciousness actually is 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 loving kindness, and uh, not consciousness through the senses because that tends to discriminate between big and small, male and female, but good and bad. But uh, metta as a refuge is is really you know the same as being mindful, being aware, and whatever arises, ceases, whatever, whether it's good, whether it's bad, whether it's a, a David or a devil, whether it's heaven, whether it's hell, it, it's, not, it, it's, it's acceptance of these sankharas, these conditions, these things that are born, created, formed, uh, conditions that we tend to identify with. But it's unusual to hear Meta talked about as acceptance. The traditional form of teaching Meta is about spreading Meta outwards to the worlds, to other beings. And you're talking about it as acceptance is a different angle on that. Yes. It's <laughs> spreading Meta is, is a, a kind of practice in Theravada Buddhism, which you know, you create goodwill towards all sentient beings with words, with thoughts, with images, with, you know, with imagining people, uh, 
your friends, your parents, your teachers, uh, your favorite pets, uh, your the wild animals, the the snakes, the mosquitoes, everything is included. But it's all still, you know, using words to to describe metta when metta is is ultimately the acceptance of the way things are. It's not approval or disapproval. It's not it's not about judging or stop passing judgment upon any condition that arises in the mind. Uh, it's so it's it, that's what this loving kindness or metta really in reality is. It's here and now. It's not just ideal idealism, positive thinking, or goodwill in the terms of thoughts, but in the realities of awareness, our very nature is is could be described as metta. So it sounds like it's more of an, an attitude of the mind than an activity of Well, the it's mind. a realization of Dhamma. Because when you investigate the sankharas, you know, which we identify with, which create the, the sense of a separate self and ego, and you really uh, observe, you know, the, the arising and ceasing of, of your ego, because the ego is impermanent and changing all the time according to the conditions that are present. But when you let go of the ego, when there's no ego, no desire, there's still consciousness. That consciousness, you you know, if you you can't get beyond it, you can't surpass it. You you can't uh, you can create into it. You know, you can create positive views of loving everybody equally and and ideals, uh, beautiful ideals in it. But there's still sankharas, you know, ideals are sankharas. They're not, they're not reality. So we, when we begin to recognize uh, awareness and loving kindness, isn't isn't a thought anymore. It's not a goodwill or a wish or just thinking positively. But it's it's the reality of dhamma. So it all kind of centers around just awareness as the refuge. And then when, when there's pure awareness and you're not attached to desires, want anything, wanted to get rid of it, you're not accepting or judging or rejecting anything, what's left is this perfect Knowing of reality is like this, which is non-discriminating. But we identify with our discriminating functions, our thoughts, our memories, you know. So you have good memories, bad memories, you, you think positively, you think negatively, you get elated through positive thinking, you get depressed through negative thinking. This is all, you know, these are all creations uh, in consciousness that we tend to be attached to and identify with. 
and that is the cause of suffering. So we, we suffer, that's why the first noble truth is about suffering, dukkha, because that's the nature of sankharas. They're, they're totally unsatisfactory because they're, their very nature, you know, the nature of the bodies to change, the nature of thoughts, the nature of, of uh, emotions, of feelings, of what we see, hear, smell, taste, touch. Everything is, is a sankara. Every single thing is a sankara. So things are sankaras. But, uh, and so when we try to uh, realize ultimate reality or Dhamma with thoughts. We're using Sankaras to, to realize what is transcending Sankaras, which is not Sankara, which is conscious awareness here and now. So that's why you can't, you know, when you try to imagine Nirvana or Nibbana, you know, the best we can do is think it's the best of the best higher than the highest happiness. Or, so we put it in superlative terms because that's, the, that's the, the limitation of language and thinking. It stops there, it can't get beyond itself. So when we stop thinking, then, you know, there's, there's, there's still consciousness. Even if you close your eyes, shut the, put plugs in your ears and shut off your nose and mouth, there's still consciousness. You know, it doesn't come and go, arise and cease. It's here and now. And it's impersonal. It's not like, like, you know, if I claim it on a personal level, I'm, I'm creating thoughts of ownership of consciousness is mine. You know, I can do that, but that's not the way it is. So this opening to reality, this awareness, is the way it is. It's not about ideal about how things should be, but it's that this moment that we're sitting here and this conservatory is like this. You know, so in this very statement, in this kind of reflection, the way it is, it's not judgmental, is it? It's not saying it's pleasant, unpleasant, right or wrong. It's like this. And there's still the knowing of it's like this. You know, it's not, it's not knowing about the way it is, it's knowing the way it is. Knowing is like this. The way you talk about acceptance as being the nature of awareness, it also allows to bring this uh, practice of metta in those terms into every moment of awareness, because it moves, it moves away from focusing metta towards beings and allows to have acceptance towards states of minds or thoughts or memories as well, doesn't it? Yeah, I mean, you know, you apply it externally, what we see or smell, taste, touch, but what we, you know, memories, uh, good memories, bad memories, depression, depressive 
emotions or elated emotions. You know, it's it's not like you know awareness is even beyond acceptance or unacceptance. It's not about me accepting conditions. It's not a, it's not personal. It's getting beyond the personal to awareness, which is impersonal. So that brings me to another question that someone asked. If you could uh, explain a little bit the difference between the knower and the knowing, in terms of sometimes people are watching the body or the mind, and they still have a sense of being the watcher, being the knower. And you talk about the knowing without a knower, without a person there who is doing the knowing. Yeah, because because the the structure of language is, you know, we identify with even with the in this Thai forest tradition, the Puto mantra, the the Buddha mantra, you know, it's knowing. It's not about Buddha or as a person or as some kind of special state, but Buddha actually, the Pali word, Sanskrit word, means knowing, knowing reality, knowing Dhamma. So, like the knower, when we think I'm the knower, then that's that's putting it in some kind of personal, I, Ajahn Sumedho, know. But when I when there's no Ajahn Sumedho, there's still knowing. Even when, you know, there's knowing that in the, in the waking state of consciousness, you know, when there's the way, it, knowing the way it is, it's not a kind of personal interpretation of the way it is. I'm not asking Ajahn Asoko to see exactly the have the same feelings about the way it is at this moment. But, you know, the, the knowing is the same. Whether Ajahn, Ajahn Masoko or myself, the knowing is the same at this very moment. It's not personal. It's not divisive. It's not inside the body where, uh, you know, can, can consciousness limited in, by the form of our human state, our human body. But it's complete freedom from limitation, from form, from conditioned phenomena. So moving away from perceiving as the knower towards just realizing knowing is really about understanding Sakyaditi, this habit of making a self and perceiving from a self. Is that correct? Yeah, well, when you reflect, you know, with language, knowing is the preferred word, because it's present participle, it's non-personal, where the knower that implies that there's somebody knowing something, you know, a separate person, a separate body knowing something at this present moment, but knowing is, is impersonal, and using the, in English grammar the present participle of knowing, is is a more useful word for reflection because it, it it's not about me and me personally knowing anything at all. So this question was asked with a little uh, added 
point, is there any technique or some sort of way that one can practice moving away from this habit of that automatically comes back to the one who knows and trying to develop more this sense of just knowing? Is there a, a way to work one's way towards that? Well, there's no technique, it's just, it's very ordinary. It's what we, we are all the time. So, I mean, it, but not what you think you are. But I, if I ask you, if you're conscious, you have to say yes. Because you know, knowing, you're conscious. It's not consciousness and knowing the same thing. So there's no technique, how do you practice developing the knowing? Trusting awareness. How do you trust awareness? That's up to you to find out. <laughs> it's very simple. Yes. But these are, these are the questions that are asked on Paul. People sometimes are still stumped by the, They understand what you say, but they're wondering how to trust awareness. Being aware of wondering how to do it is awareness. And if you wonder how to be mindful, you're aware that you're wondering about it. You want to know what it is. That, and whatever's present in your mind, whatever your thoughts are, your feelings are in the present, they're like they are. You know, whether, you know, you can't make yourself feel happy and, and just at will. You know, emotions are very non-self. They arise and cease according to so many other conditions. Because life itself is about praise and blame, happiness and suffering, good fortune, misfortune, success and failure. You know, so the world, the, the worldly dhammas, the changing conditions, you know, they can't find permanent success, permanent security, permanent wealth, permanent love, permanent happiness through, through the material world, through the conditioned realm. It's impossible. You can't find yourself as as a you know as a as a thought or as a memory. When there's no thought, no memory, there's still consciousness. It's empty. It's pure. It's uh, it's uh, happiness itself, or or metta, because it it's 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 perfect and it you know it's it's perfection that. Um, is impersonal. It's whole and complete. It's not. It's not divisive or or separated in in right and wrong, good and bad. To to separate things in the present moment, like you know what we see, I can you know see it's you know outside. I can see it's there's it a kind of flutter of snowflakes and and. Uh, and whether I like that or not, you know, takes, you know, takes the, the habit formations that make my personality work is approval or disapproval. <clears throat> and I can say I accept reality as, as, uh, as it is, which is still sakyaditi because it's still words. So you're getting beyond acceptance or unacceptance into just trusting 
pure aware consciousness in the present moment is like this. And I'd like to, I think the ability to listen, I found that sense of listening is very helpful word to, to use if, if you want a technique of some sort. Because listening is, you're not listening at anything in particular, but it's kind of wide open spacious listening. And, uh, you know, it accepts whatever sounds arise. The birds outside, the, the fall of rain or, uh, noise of the door slamming. It's not, it's, you know, you're listening in this total accepting way rather than listening for something. Like when I talk about sound of silence, you know, it's, it's just this open listening. It's not listening to, to a special sound. It's this wide open, receptive, natural state that we don't, you can't create it. It's, it's tamachat, it's natural. It's not a sound or a nimita. It's not a sound, it's not a nimita. It doesn't come and go. It's always the kind of substratum, the, the background of everything, of, of all your emotions, all your thoughts, memories. You know, when you, when you start recognizing the silence where the, the noise arises, the silence is never destroyed by the noise. If you try to silence the noise, you know, you can be a, become a control freak and try to set up a perfect, like a, you know, sensory deprivation system where you don't hear anything at all. <clears throat> but that's control, you know, you're, you're, you yourself don't want noise, you don't want sound, you don't want irritating sounds to disrupt your practice of meditation and, and being aware of that. Being aware of not wanting things to be the way they are is one of the f forms of desire that we're very attached to. But with awareness, we're not judging the way things are. We're, we're just allowing things to be what they are at this moment because they'll change. But it, what doesn't change is awareness, is consciousness, or is this empty, what we call empty state, empty Dhamma, uh, which is reality itself, it's perfect. What's imperfect that manifests in, in consciousness is thoughts and emotions and what we see the senses that we have in our body are all subject to change and, and conditions and to youth and old age and so forth. So, so when we identify with, with our sentient nature, we're bound to suffer because there's nothing we can do about it. But, you know, as much as we try to, to make everything beautiful and perfect and ideal, it's going to change because that's its nature. So in Vipassana meditation, the insight practices are to recognize beyond sankharas, you know, the reality of here and now, rather than, than trying to 
thinking about reality here and now with sankaras, which you can't do. So this listening is really coming back to this relaxation you're always pointing to. Relax listening, open attentiveness. It's like the present moment is like this. And in uh, Pali language, datta da, they have this word datta, which means the way it is, suchness as they tra is oftentimes translated. Because this moment, here and now, can only be like this. And of course, the, you know, in a few minutes, everything will change. And if what, from what I see, hear, smell, taste, touch, think and feel. But what never changes is conscious awareness, intuitive awareness. And it's learning to trust that. So it, it's not a technique, you, because if I, you know, the best, you know, word I can say is listening, this wide open, receptive listening, relaxed listening, uh, and, and just observing, being the, the knower that uh, thoughts come and go. You're not trying to judge them anymore or, or attach to them or get rid of them, but they are what they are. You can be patient, you know, with, you know, there's so much unpleasant thinking or depressive worries, anxieties about the future, about one's life that we are trying to get rid of. You know, we don't want anxiety. We don't want to worry. We want to be happy. So, you know, we, we feel there's something wrong with us if we de get depressed. You know, we have to go to psychiatrist to deal with with depression because we see it as a personal kind of flaw and and see it and you know and regard it as something we want to get rid of rather than to understand and so you know and depression is impermanent and not self I mean depression can seem permanent but it only seems that way because you want to get rid of it. When you want to get rid of something, it seems like it'll never, it'll never go away. But as you allow things to be what they are in the present and, and be, trust the awareness of them, they are what they are, you begin to see like moods change. Happiness, you know, happy moods change, depressive moods change. Boredom changes. You know, in monastic life, we have to deal a lot with boredom because it's so routine. You know, where we we kind of re renounce the the entertainment world, the way we can kind of enjoy things through the senses uh, are kind of not allowed for us. So we have to deal with with this this kind of restless incredible restlessness of our personal habits and physical condition. But it's, it's acceptable. It's not trying to get rid of restlessness or boredom, but letting it be what it is and 
And by doing that, we're not struggling with it. We're not grasping it. We're not trying to resist it, get rid of it. But it is, you know, trusting in this sense of all conditions are impermanent. And I remember as a Samanera years ago, 55 years ago, you know, and I was, uh, before I met Lung Po I kept, you know, I was very interested in Zen Buddhism at the time. And I was quite new to Theravada Buddhism. So becoming a Theravada and Samanera, a novice monk, I had books uh, in English and I would review these books and then, of course, the teaching all conditions are impermanent. And, you know, then you translate that everything is impermanent. And so I, I decided to develop a koan. Uh, everything is impermanent. And then I could see, I attached to that because I read it in a, in a sutta. And so I have to believe that everything is impermanent, you know, so I could see that even attaching to the, the words of the Buddha in the scriptures is still attaching to words. And so is there anything that is permanent? You know, so I made a kind of koan, what is, what is permanent? And during that year, uh, where I was living alone very much by myself, in a, in a forest monastery in Thailand, I, you know, I had to, you know, I could see that my moods and my thoughts, my memories and, and repressed emotions started manifesting. You know, I lost control of what I could think and feel. I began to feel tremendous anger and resentment, not at anything in the monastery or in the present state, but just from past memories, from resentments from the past, from the unfairness of life as I experienced it, and the, and the misunderstandings and the guilt around misbehavior in my past. And as all that began to manifest in consciousness, you know, it began to uh, unmanifest, disappear. And when, when I let things just manifest and, and disappear, you know, I began to notice what I call sound of silence or this empty state of pure, you know, that seemed to be, I thought it was impermanent too. You know, I kept thinking everything is impermanent because the Buddha said so. So I didn't know what it was. I had no idea what, what it was, but I found because it had a, a kind of continuum, it didn't have any beginning or ending. My mindfulness, my awareness of it would come and go. But as I began to trust it more and more, I began to see that it's always present here and now. So I'd, over the years, you know, becoming a bhikkhu, uh, going living with Lumpur Cha in Ubarm, coming to England, I've always referred to this empty state as, as my refuge. And the practice is to trust it, 
because you can't create it. You can't, I can't make myself as a person empty. But emptiness is, or awareness, or consciousness, is always here and now. Whatever state your mind is in, whatever, you know, you're going through, whether it's praise and blame, success and failure. And Lumpur Cha always encouraged me to trust that. You've used this to much benefit in some difficult situations. Yes, I found because it, it gives you this, this ability to listen, to, to accept the reality of here and now. Where I found, yes, a personality and being a leader, a head monk, a senior bhikkhu who everybody looked up to, uh, you know, I like the praise. I like to, people say, oh, Ajahn Sumedho, you're a very wise teacher and so forth. But when they started criticizing me, you know, I found out, you know, how how I'd fall apart under criticism. I'd get caught in doubt and hurt, feelings, offended. I'd get very reactive as, you know, I observe this. As I, as, as I, my, my people began to criticize me, monks began to disrobe, uh, things started, you know, from the early successes in England to, to a lot of failures, uh, you know, you know, success was what I like, failure is what I don't like as a person. That's ego, that's succubity, that's personality. But I found out with awareness, then that accepts both, you know, you can receive criticism, but you, you, aren't, you aren't grasping it anymore. You can realize if it's, if it's, uh, truthful or if it's made up, if it's being malicious or whether there's something to take into account, but your awareness of it, you're not getting re just reactive out of habit or offended uh, by, by your childish emotional habits. So it's a kind of a kind of total freedom to receive life as you experience it not demanding it be successful or, or being appreciated or being admired, but whatever happens, you know, whatever comes your way in life, your karma, the, the way, the one you have to deal with, uh, good health or bad health, that's totally acceptable. That's the, that's the karmic state of the law of karma of what is born dies, what begins ends cause and effect. That's the, the conditioned realm. All conditions are impermanent. But we don't take our refuge in impermanence. I mean, we don't take our refuge in, in, in conditioned phenomena that, that, that can't be a refuge. It's impossible. Money, wealth, position, all, uh, good health, all these things are, they can change according to other conditions that we can't control. So there's always anxiety and fear in people's lives because even at the peak of success, uh, you know, in life success, there's always a sense of losing it. 
of being unsuccessful, of, of getting sick, of getting cancer, of getting COVID virus, of fear of death. You know, all these are created with thoughts and desires for happy, permanent happiness from conditioned phenomena, which is impossible. Conditioned phenomena, very nature is to like your breath. You inhale. You can only inhale so far, and you have to stop and exhale. You can only, you know, things can only be, uh, you know, you can only grow up to a certain age, and you start growing old. You know, youth doesn't last very long, and then actually you start growing old once you're born. <laughs> But the, the attitude of old age really begins around 30, at least for me. You know, I, when I was 30, I thought my youth is over now. But now 30 still seems very youthful. But this, open, you know, relaxation is also another word that's helpful. Listening, this open listening is, is in Pali is called Satisampachanya, intuitive awareness, I call it. It's non-discriminatory, not about judgment, but it is the way it is. And it's peaceful. It's, you know, so the true nature you know, Dhamma itself is peaceful, it's perfect. In these Buddhist terms, in these Theravada terms, we take refuge in Dhamma in the, in the ultimate reality of wholeness, completeness, not in the changing conditions that we see, hear, smell, taste, think and feel. So when you bind yourself to, you know, see yourself as this limited personality, this physical form, as a man or a woman, as a, as a Brit or a Thai or an American, you know, you're, you're limiting yourself to, to a condition whose very nature is imperfect, you know, that has no real essence, no core to it, but is hollow and empty. The future at this moment, you know, these there's reflections on time is only imagined, you know, like tomorrow or later on today, you know, imagine in, in an hour or so I'll have my meal. That's an imagination here and now, and I'm aware of that, that here and now is not an hour from now, but it's imagining with these words, in an hour from now I have my, my dinner or lunch, whatever you call it, for a month. <laughs> and, and yesterday, you know, was, is a memory. I remember things that happened yesterday. I remember Ajahn Asoko feeding the, the squirrels and the pigeons. And that, that's a memory that I have that's arising now, but I'm aware it's a memory. So there's no past or, or future. There's only the Pachubana Dhamma, the here and now reality of now. So it's not a technique that you that you have to think about, but learn to trust. 
learn to relax, open yourself, listen, and whatever comes up, allow it to be, you know, just see your tendency to resist or repress or grasp or want things that you don't have or want things to be different than what they are. So this quarantine that Anurvati has been very pleasant introduction back to life in Britain because it's very peaceful being in quarantine. And English winter is, is one of my favorite seasons because it's so quiet. English winters are very silent and quiet. And they have their own beauty when you're not just comparing it to springtime or Thailand or someplace like that. Then you don't like, you know, you complain about the English winter, it's cold and damp and, and we, we know all that. <clears throat> but if you, if you just see the English winter in terms of that, that's discrimination, isn't it? It's, it's, uh, you know, and it gives this negative, uh, there's a kind of negative perceptions of life in, in the wintertime in England because in Thailand, you know, springtime nearly all the all year round and, and, and uh, many of the Thai friends say, why do you want to go back there in the winter? England in January is, is cold, damn, and, uh, and that it is, but it's, you know, if I just dwell on the fact that it's cold and damp, then I don't feel very happy about being back here. I miss Thailand. But if I don't do that, except cold and damp is like this, I don't, I don't suffer from it. The suffering is wanting it not to be cold and damp when it is. <laughs>